Today we're going to study just a few verses, but they are really crucially important verses for us. But before we read our text for this morning, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the the Corinthians had been exposed to a dangerous and aberrant false teaching that there would be no resurrection. And so let's start looking at maybe verse 12 here first of all, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so some of them had begun to teach that there's no resurrection, that uh, saints who die aren't going to be raised again. And Paul, Paul corrects this false teaching in chapter 15 by reminding the Corinthians of the gospel, especially that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to Christianity. And if Jesus rose from the dead, we will rise as well. Those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ will rise again as well when we die. And so I want to begin by looking at the first four verses here of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says there, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians of the Gospel. It's the Gospel that Paul preached. It's the Gospel the Corinthians received. It's the Gospel in which they stand. It's the Gospel by which they are being saved. And Paul's thinking there of that ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, transforming them, saving them, making them like Christ. The gospel, he says, is of first importance in verse 3. It's number one. The gospel is top of the ladder. And then Paul says what this gospel is. It's what he delivered to the Corinthians, and it's what he received from the risen Lord Jesus. Again, in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so this is the saving good news of first importance, that Jesus died, number one, that he died for our sins, number two, that he was buried, that he truly died, and then number three, that he was raised from the dead. And all of that was according to the scriptures, according to the word of God. This was witnessed by the 12 and by others, and last of all, by Paul, and those witnesses handed it on to others who handed it down to us through the word of God. Those witnesses, by and large, were those who recorded the truth of it in the New Testament, which we have in our Bibles today. And in our text today, in Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19, that's the passage we're going to look at, Jesus predicts all of these things. He predicts that he will die, he predicts how he will die, and he predicts his resurrection. And this is an opportunity then for us this morning to revisit the gospel. It's a chance for us to hear the good news again, and we're going to focus today on that which is of first importance, that Jesus Christ died, that he was crucified, and that he rose again. We're going to focus on Christ and him crucified. And so let's read our text. Go over to Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. The verses, the words themselves are quite simple, but the meaning of it all is really exceedingly deep. Again, starting in verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes 
and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. We're going to look at this text under four headings. We're going to see the Savior's resolve. We're going to see the leader's ruling. We're going to see the Gentiles' response. And then we'll see finally at the end of the Lord's resurrection. And together, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Jesus resolved to do in Jerusalem, he does for us and for our salvation. And this is what we need to believe and what we need to hold fast to, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15. This is what we have received or what we need to receive in order to be saved. This is what we must stand upon and trust in. This is the good news of eternal life. And it's the message that must go forth from this pulpit and that must be preached again and again in this place. It's what Jesus predicted and fulfilled what Paul preached. And it's what I would preach as well as a preacher of Christ and him crucified. And so first of all, let's look at the Savior's resolve in verse 17 and the first part of verse 18. Again, number one, the Savior's resolve. Verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the first thing we want to realize here is is what our text describes, the suffering of the Son of Man, that all of this did not surprise Jesus. Jesus expected it. Jesus predicted it before it would happen. He knew what would happen to him before it happened. See, sometimes people have this idea that that Jesus was a good teacher, uh, maybe a holy man or a, a misunderstood man, and that he was killed by his own people. And they see him maybe as a martyr, a martyr who is caught by surprise. But that's not what the Gospels portray. Jesus knew what would happen to him in Jerusalem, and he made no effort to prevent it from happening. In fact, we see just the opposite. Jesus sought to fulfill what the Scriptures predicted and what his Father had planned. And so this is Jesus' resolve, the Savior's resolve. He was resolved to go to Jerusalem in order to suffer these things. The people didn't catch him unawares. The devil didn't overcome him or surprise him. The devil didn't trick him into it. Jesus knew long before it happened exactly what would happen. And we could ask then, how did Jesus know? How did Jesus know? Or or we could ask, when did Jesus know? When did Jesus learn that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, condemned to death, delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified? And that's a difficult question, when did Jesus know? And and there's really kind of two parts to answering it. First of all, as God, we can say that there's a sense in which Jesus always knew. Jesus was there, or or maybe we should say the Logos was there, the Word was there, that Christ was there, the pre-incarnate Christ was there before the foundation of the world in the eternal counsel of God. Before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made a plan. And it was called in Scripture the counsel of Yahweh, the purpose of Yahweh, or my holy counsel, my purpose. And this plan that the, the Trinity made includes all things whatsoever comes to pass in the world. And I want to show you this in a, a couple of passages. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're thinking about when did Jesus know And according to his divinity, he knew in the counsel of God before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Well, let's look at that carefully. See, Paul wants Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel, and he wants him to do that by the power of God. And and that's really a great thought right there, that it's by God's omnipotent power that we are enabled to suffer in this world. But this powerful God, according to Timothy, or, or according to Paul here, this powerful God saved us and called us. Paul is thinking about himself and of, of Timothy in this moment, that, that they, Paul and Timothy, were saved and called by this powerful God. They were saved and called to a holy calling. This is referring to what we call the effectual call, a call out of darkness into light, a call into fellowship with God's Son. And this call is a call that saved both Paul and Timothy. It brought them into a a state of salvation, into a saved state. And what was the reason for this? What did God save and call, or, or why did God save and call Paul and Timothy? And Paul answers that both negatively and positively. First of all, it was not because of their works. Again in verse 9, who saved us, And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because, and so it's not because of our works, but because of why? But because, in verse 9, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so God saved us, Paul and Timothy, because not what what we purposed or, or what we did, if we're thinking about our salvation, it's not because of what we did or what we purposed or what we willed, or even because of what we didn't do, but because of his own purpose, because of his grace. And if you look at it there, when did this grace go forth? Again, it says in verse 9, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Before time began, before Paul or Timothy even existed, this saving grace was given them in Christ Jesus. And that means that God knew about the fall into sin before the world was created. And he knew Paul and Timothy before the world was created, and he purposed to save them by grace. And that salvation was in Christ So that God had already planned to send Christ as the Savior and he knew that that plan would succeed all before the ages began. And that's really remarkable to think about. Another place where we can see this um, is in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. And so let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1. When, When this plan was made... Jesus, the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Son, the second person of the Trinity, was there. And we see that again in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and salvation was planned in him and with him. Again, another place to to turn here is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 And verse 4, it says there, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, so he is the father, the first he, even as he, God the father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so the Father chose us, that is, 
believers. The Father chose believers in Him, in Christ. He didn't choose Christ and whoever happened to be in Him came with Christ. No, He, he chose us, those who, who would be saved. He chose us. And He chose us in Him, which means something like He chose us in connection with Christ. See, everything that God does in salvation, He does in and through Christ. And notice that God didn't just choose us generally, but He chose us unto salvation. He chose us there that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Again, that's speaking about salvation. And He predestined in verse 5, and that's very similar to this idea of God choosing. Predestined means simply to, to choose beforehand. And again, we're talking about here before the foundation of the world, before creation, before you or I were even born. And what did God decide beforehand? What did he predestine beforehand? He decided on us. And of course, Paul here is speaking about himself and the Ephesian believers, but it really applies to everyone who ever comes to saving faith. God predestined us. He decided on us specifically that he would adopt us and bring us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's what the text says. Look at the last clause there in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. I was reading a a book that Reese gave me for Christmas the other day, and in that book there was a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and, and he said this, quote, I see God first. And man, far down the list, we think too much of God to please this present age, but we are not ashamed. Man has a will, and oh, how they cry it up. But sirs, has not God a will too? What do you attribute to that will? Have you nothing to say of its omnipotence? Is God to have no choice, no purpose, no sovereignty over his own gifts? Brethren, If we live in sympathy with God, we delight to hear him say, I am God and there is none else, end quote. God has a will. God has a purpose. He has a plan and he formed that plan before the world was. And he formed it in connection with his son. And he accomplishes that plan in time through the free choices of men and devils. According to the purpose of his will, again in verse 5. But look down at verse 11. It says there, in him, and again we ask, well, who's him here? It's, It's Christ. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, this is a verse that we need to know. We who have an inheritance in Christ have that inheritance because we were predestined according to God's purpose. This is talking about salvation. You know, a lot of people are willing to admit that that God works all things according to his will except for salvation, but actually what, what this text is telling us is that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, and the context here is actually salvation specifically. Again, in 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now remember, we're asking here, or we're supposed to be asking here, when did Jesus know about his sufferings? And the answer is, in one sense, according to his divine nature, he knew it before the foundation of the world according to the counsel of his will as God. God the Son was part of the inner Trinitarian council before the world was. Every aspect of everything that would ever happen was planned, including the suffering of the Son of God to save sinners. Peter spoke about this in his first post-resurrection sermon. This is Acts chapter 2. I guess we could turn there if if you want to turn to Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 22. 
Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless Men, did you catch it there? Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Very similarly in Acts chapter 4 and verse 27, Peter here now speaking to God in prayer. He says in verse 27, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. But then, and, and so Peter's there acknowledging all of the, the human elements that were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. But then in verse 28, he says that all of those people together were, had gathered together in verse 28 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so again, in one sense, Jesus came into the world knowing this plan. And he planned this plan as God. And in his first recorded words, this is Luke 2.49. Jesus says to his parents, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And literally there, it's, did you not know? And, and there's this continuous sense of the knowledge that his, he thought his parents would have did you not know that, that I must be in the blank of my father? And, and it's kind of left for the reader to fill in. Didn't you know that, that I must be in the house of my father or in the, the business of my father or, or about the things of my father? Didn't you know that? Jesus, even from a very early age, knew that, that there was a plan that the father had for him and there was a, a work that he was given and, and he was to be about that business, that plan in his father's house. In FOF this week, we're going to look at some verses in John where Jesus is aware of fulfilling his father's will. I'm just going to give you one of those for now. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so Jesus came to do the work of his father. And the Father had given him a work to do. And as God, Jesus knew that work and he was aware of his mission. But as a man, kind of moving to the other part of this now, as a man, Jesus will have learned about this mission little by little. You know, you think about him as a baby. According to his human nature, he wouldn't have been aware of it. Hebrews 5 and verse 8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience. Philippians chapter 2 speaks of an increasing obedience in the Lord Jesus, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And eventually, as Jesus grew and matured as a man, he became fully aware of all that he would have to endure. And at a certain point in his ministry, kind of late into his ministry, he felt that it was time to also reveal this plan to his disciples to prepare them. And so, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We've, we've looked at some of these already earlier, of course. Commentators typically speak of three predictions of the cross. Matthew 16, 21 is the, the first one, although there was, there was hints of it before this. But Matthew 16, 21 says, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Note the word must there. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then if you flip over to Matthew 17 and look at verse 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And then for the third time in our text, again, verse 18 of chapter 20. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And so Jesus knew what would happen to him. But despite this knowledge, this foreknowledge of of what he would suffer, Jesus was committed to doing his Father's will. He was resolved and he would not be deterred. He must go to Jerusalem. And so we see in Jesus a willingness to suffer to accomplish his Father's will, which also goes hand in hand with accomplishing our salvation. I love that verse we read in our scripture reading today in John 12, 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And then he says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's, he's kind of knows he's about to be crucified. His hour has come and he, and he says, what am I supposed to say in this hour? Save me from this hour. But he says, no. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus came to glorify the Father by his death. He came to save us, and he was resolved to do it when the time came, when that hour had come. And as it was that, that time was approaching, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he led the way to Jerusalem. We see the resolve of the Lord Jesus Christ on another occasion, a little bit later on in Matthew. This is Matthew 26, 53 and 54. He says, do not think that, do you not think? No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it wrong. It says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And so Jesus says, I, I could have called a 12 legions of angels and they would have delivered me from this hour. They would have saved me from this hour. But he recognizes that the scripture must be fulfilled. The parallel passage, let's, let's turn over there. The parallel passage to our passage in Mark chapter 10. Mark, this is Mark 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But what I really want you to see there is that picture that Mark paints and, and Jesus is, is leading the way. He's walking ahead of them, going to Jerusalem. And the disciples are amazed and, and kind of following at a distance, even afraid, knowing that the Jews are planning to kill him when he gets there. And so we see then the Savior's resolve. Now let's see number two, the the leader's ruling. The leader's ruling. This is verse 18 and the first part of verse 19. The leader's ruling. Again, in verse 18, see we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus calls himself here the Son of Man, as he often did. And he said that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Now, he doesn't yet indicate, not, not yet, but he will eventually, he doesn't indicate that, that it was going to be Judas who would deliver him over to the leaders. He just simply says that he would be delivered over. But we know now that the one who would deliver him over was Judas, one of the twelve. Now that word translated deliver over can mean to hand anything or anyone over to another person. And so a person or a thing can be given to somebody else. 
But this word took on a special meaning because Jesus used it to refer to Judas's betrayal. Judas delivered Jesus over to the authorities. He betrayed him to the religious authorities. And some translations even translated here, the Son of Man will be betrayed. You see, God planned that His own unique Son would be betrayed by one of His closest companions. It was part of God's plan. Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests and the scribes. And that in itself is, is really remarkable because these people who he was delivered over to, they were supposed to be the defenders of true religion in Israel. The scribes were experts in the law of Moses. They were Bible interpreters, Bible scholars, if you will. Many of them would have literally copied Scripture to preserve it for future generations. And they would have known, or they at least should have known, the prophecies that confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the one that they were looking for and waiting for. The chief priests, they were in charge of the whole temple system, of all of the sacrifices and offerings in the temple. You see, they were in charge of Israel's worship. And you see what's happening here then? The supposed leaders of worship are going to kill the one that they supposedly worship. The one that they claim to live for and, and seem to live for and seem to worship, they condemned to death. And I think this shows us the sinfulness of man. You see, man's natural disposition is hostility against God. Even religious man is contrary to God at heart. And what the Lord planned here then is a demonstration of the extent of the depravity of man. Given the chance, or given the right set of circumstances, man would kill God. That's our nature. That's our, our dreadful nature, our terrible nature. Unless we are born again, that is the natural inclination of man hostility against God, even to the point of killing him. You know, we might think, and, and some of us here today might think, well, we're decent folks. We're good people. You know, we might even think our sins are small. And maybe they are small, but, but God knows the heart. He knows the inner hostility of each one of us against him before we're saved. He knows our nature. And every one of us in our unredeemed nature is contrary to God, hostile to God, at enmity with God. And given the right set of circumstances, we too would have betrayed Jesus Christ or condemned Him to death or crucified Him and been involved in that whole situation. You see then from this how desperately we need to be saved because God will condemn us Because we would have condemned his only son. And don't think that being religious or attending church or other religious duty is enough. The chief priests and the scribes, they were very religious. They were very faithful. They were very involved in the God-ordained religion of that day. That's not enough. You need to be born again. And so Jesus predicted that the, and prophesied that these religious leaders would condemn him to death. And the word condemn there implies some form of judicial process. There would be a trial and Jesus would be found guilty and he would be condemned to death. Now the group that would be responsible for this and that would ultimately do this was the Sanhedrin, which consisted of scribes, and Pharisees, and the chief priests, but there were 70 leaders called the Sanhedrin. And the Romans gave them some authority to rule to, in some limited capacity in Israel, but they didn't have the authority. They weren't given the authority to put anyone to death. And what they would have to do is, and, and what they would do is that they would make a ruling. Maybe that somebody should be put to death, and then they would hand that person over to the Roman authorities who would then carry out and, and really make their own ruling and then carry it out as well. And that's exactly what Jesus predicted would happen again in verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, the purpose for which Jesus was going to be delivered over to the Gentiles is in the rest of verse 19. And this is number three in our outline. Number three, the Gentiles' response. The Gentiles' response in the second part of verse 19, the middle part, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Again, this is the purpose for which the, the chief priests are going to deliver him over in order to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And this is, this is hard to preach. See, we're coming now to the suffering of God's own Son, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he was condemned by the Jewish leaders and delivered over to the Gentiles. In this case, the Gentiles are Romans, the, the Roman citizens, the, the Roman authorities. The Jews condemned Jesus and gave him over to Pilate to be crucified. And the judicial system at that time wasn't necessarily humane. And the process typically involved mocking of the prisoner even before he was convicted of a crime. The fulfillment of this is recorded in Matthew 27. And if you want to look there, Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. It says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The flogging that Jesus predicted was right before that in verse 26. Then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus or flogged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. This scourging or flogging involved being whipped with a leather whip and on that leather whip embedded into the tips of it was sharp bits of bone or metal. And they would, they would flog the, the, the one who is being crucified. They would do this to ensure that, that when the one who is crucified was crucified that they would die on the cross. And sometimes the whipping was so severe that it would actually take two people to do it, half done by the first guy and half by another because it was, it was too much labor to do all of the whipping but for one guy. And apparently people could survive crucifixion if it wasn't prolonged, if it wasn't kind of prolonged indefinitely, it could be survived. And so to ensure that the victim would die sooner and that they would die on the cross, they would be flogged so that the, the bleeding and the, the ripped up back would make it harder to lift yourself up on the cross. See, when you're hanging on a cross, apparently, again, I'm not an expert on this, but apparently you would have to kind of lift yourself up in order to breathe. And so as Jesus would have to lift himself up in order to take a breath, uh, it, it would rub on his back where he was flogged. And so you would have to lift yourself up in order to take a breath. Otherwise, you would, you would really die on the cross of suffocation because when you could no longer lift yourself up, you could no longer breathe. And so Jesus was mocked and flogged and crucified and nailed to a cross. And again, we saw that a, a few minutes ago that this horrible death Really, the, the most horrible death that the ancient world could imagine, the most horrible death imaginable was part of God's predetermined plan. That God had designed this for His Son. And we have to ask, why? Why would God plan this plan? Why did God plan this plan for His Son? Why was Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem when He knew that this is what awaited Him there? And to answer that, I want to turn to some passages. And the first one is going to be in John chapter 3. So let's go and let's look at John chapter 3 as we think, why, why is this God's plan for his only begotten son? John 
John chapter 3. We know John 3.16 very well. But John 3.16 is actually an explanation of what Jesus said just before that, starting in verse 14. John 3.14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now you know, I, I, I think you know the story of the serpents from Numbers 21. Remember, Israel had spoken against God and against Moses. They complained about the lack of food and the water in the wilderness, even though they were, they were eating the manna already by that time. And in Numbers 21, verse 6, as punishment for this, it says that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now the serpents were God's judgment. And the serpent on the pole then represented that judgment. And the thing that killed the people is now represented as as dead itself on this pole. And when somebody would look at the serpent on the pole, it was as though the serpent died in their place. And the same thing happens with the Lord Jesus Christ. We were condemned. We were under the judgment of God and we were going to perish because of our sins. We will perish because of our sins unless we are born again. But instead of us dying, another took our place and whoever looks to him or whoever believes on him will be saved from God's judgment. Look at the next verse, the word for there in verse 16, we're in, we're in John 3, 16, explains this whole thing a little bit more in more detail. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, we were going to perish, but Jesus was lifted up in our place. And that's why if you look back in verse 14, it says that he must die. See, it was necessary for him to die so that we could have eternal life. If Jesus didn't do this for whoever believes in him, we would, we would have had to have perished. But because Jesus perished as our representative on the cross, we can be saved through him. Now let's go to another passage to answer this question. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. Again, we're asking why? Why would God plan this for his son? And Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah predicted this. Again, how can Isaiah predict it? Because it was part of God's plan and God revealed that to him. Uh, Isaiah 53, we'll start in verse 4. As we look at some of these passages, I just want you to note the, the, what I'm calling here the language of representation. The servant of Isaiah 53, the, the Messiah, took upon himself the suffering and the sins of his people. And, and we see that throughout this passage. But Isaiah 53, we'll, we'll just read some of these here, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Skip down to verse 8. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? See, the speakers in Isaiah 53, they're recognizing that he, Jesus, the servant of God, was was smitten by God, that he was afflicted, that he was chastised, that he was crushed, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, and it was because of their sin, because of their iniquities, because of their transgressions. And his wounds were for them. And by his wounds, they were healed. By his wounds, we are healed. And again, we could ask, well, why was he wounded and smitten by God and killed? And the answer is because of our sin. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the again, Yahweh, Yahweh has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Note there, especially that, that middle verse there, his soul became a sin offering for our guilt. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin, and on that cross, he drank the cup of the Father's wrath. And he did so for the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him. And that's why it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. Because only by his death could we have life. And so it was the will of Yahweh to glorify himself by the death of his son. And so the will of Yahweh was to crush him. But at the end of verse 10, the will of the Lord, the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. And again, it's because only by his death could we have life. You see, sin had to be punished. And so for us to have eternal life, Jesus had to die. But praise God, that is not the end of the whole thing. Jesus bore our sins and he died in our place. But there's the promise here already in Isaiah 53 of a resurrection. Again, look at verse 10. He shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. And in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their inequities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And so we can ask there, how is he going to see and be satisfied with his work if his work was to die accomplishing that work, how would that happen? Of course, by a resurrection. How would Yahweh divide him a portion with the many that he saved? And it's because death could not hold him. And that's going to be number four in our outline then. We're going to see number four. Let's look at the Lord's resurrection. And with that, I think we're going back to Matthew chapter 20. The Lord's resurrection in Part C of verse 19, the final part. Let's just read that whole thing again, though. Matthew 20, starting in verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Our focus here is on the last part of verse 19, and he will be raised on the third day. And I'm going to be very brief here. I simply want to tell you this morning that Jesus is alive. He's alive. He rose from the dead. He was raised. And so we don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Lord. And the disciples, they were never able to kind of grasp this final part of the prediction that Jesus made. Again, this is the third prediction, but they were never, never really able to grasp this until they saw Jesus alive on the third day after he was crucified. And the resurrection confirms for us that Jesus is the Christ, 
that he is the son of the living God and that God has accepted his sacrifice for our sins. Jesus rose victorious over sin and over death. And through him, we also will triumph over death and we will live forever. We too will be resurrected if we trust in Jesus Christ. Through him, our sins are forgiven and we are accounted as righteous. His death makes many righteous. Everyone who trusts in him is counted as righteous in him and our sins are forgiven in him. And so if you are here this morning and you aren't a believer and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and given your life to Jesus Christ and, and become a disciple of his, committed yourself to following him and believing in him and trusting in him alone for salvation, I would just invite you today to come to Jesus Christ. You can come to him. You can turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved today and know that you're going to heaven. And so I would invite you to come to Jesus Christ today. Don't delay. Don't wait any longer. You don't know. You could die any moment, any day. And so today is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus Christ and be saved. And if you're here this morning and you do believe in Jesus Christ and you have trusted in Christ, I hope that our message today has reminded you of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, like Paul, I say I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for Jesus' resolve. We thank you for all that you planned for him, that he would be delivered over by Judas, that he would be delivered to the chief priests for a, a mock trial that he would be delivered then from them to the Gentiles in order to be mocked and spit upon and crucified. And yet, Father, in all of the suffering, we recognize that it was your will and your plan that it was for our salvation. And so we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this plan that you made. We thank you for the glory that it gives to you to see the greatness of who you are and the greatness of who your Son is, and the greatness of the, the Holy Spirit that you have sent. We thank you for this gospel with all of our hearts, and we pray that, that it would go forth from this pulpit, that sinners would be saved. Even now, Father, we pray for those who are in our midst who aren't saved, that you would save them and open their eyes to the gospel. And we pray that us who are believing in this gospel would hold firm to it, that we would recognize that it has made us righteous, that we would rejoice in our relationship with you because of it, that we would be those who proclaim this gospel to the world, and that, that by the power of this gospel, we would be saved and made like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.